If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter number 6. Book of Acts chapter number 6, that's where we'll start uh, in just a moment. So as you know, we've been going through uh, a study on biblical theology, and uh, last week we spent a good deal of time sort of be, uh, getting into, if you will, the nitty-gritty uh, of where the, the foundation for such a thing as biblical theology starts with. Uh, what we've striven to do throughout the series is just to pinpoint, to show, and to uh, be able to express um, how truly um, foundational it is, the statement that all of the Bible is about Jesus. That uh, might sound like something that's so uh, reducing the, the Bible to something too simple, but in fact, uh, that's what Jesus himself does, as we have shown uh, on several occasions. Um, but I think this also comes out of how foundational it is just to know what the Bible says. I think there's nothing more important for the church, of course, the church uh, to know what the Bible says, but also I would say equally as important, if perhaps even more important, is to know what it's trying to say. What's, what's the message? What's the meaning just behind the words? It's one thing to know what the words are, are saying or how they're how they're functioning within this particular letter or this particular book or what is the message that they're conveying what's being communicated by all of these verses and chapters and books and what are the authors trying to say behind all of these words and i think um, as we've shown and as we've established uh, i think the church is desperate for more students of biblical theology, for more people who are going to be committed to rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, again, it's one thing to know what the Bible says. It's another thing entirely to know what the Bible means. Um, this is what we have been striving to do uh, during our midweek uh, Bible lessons for our children here at church. Don't just memorize words and say, I know what the Bible says. Okay, that's great, but what does the Bible mean by what it says? When it says, one of the Bible lessons that we just went through for our young people is in 1 Corinthians 6, where it talks about the fact that they are not their own, but they were bought with a price. Uh, anyone can just rattle that off, but what does that mean? Well, in the context of the lesson, we were trying to establish the fact that what that means is that now uh, that you, t if you by grace through faith believe in Jesus and his accomplishments for you on the cross, then that purchase of you on the cross means you're not your own, but you belong body and soul to God. What that means then also, of course, is just that it gives great comfort and peace to the soul that believes that. But then it also informs how they're supposed to live because they belong body and soul to the Lord Jesus and to God the Father. Uh, that's the stress that I think biblical theology makes. Not just knowing what it says, not just knowing what the Bible says, but knowing what it means. And of course, all of this should bring us from down out of the realms of history, so to speak, and into the realm of revelation. 
This is something that Jason is doing a good job of leading us through on Sunday mornings uh, in the study of bibliology, which is just that the Bible is not just a book of literature, not just a book of, of history, not just a book of poetry, not just a book of anything else you can insert there. Primarily, this book that we have in front of us called the Bible is a book of revelation. Um, what you have in front of you, or if you have your phone even, that too, um, is the inspired, but also we could say the divinely preserved word of special revelation through which God has uh, revealed how he has chosen to redeem a world full of sinners. That's what the Bible is. That's the story that it aims to show. It's an unfolding story. From the very beginning to the very end, we have a story that kind of keeps unraveling. Uh, It's like one of those things where you keep uh, pulling away more layers, pulling away more facets of this beautiful story that keeps getting deeper and deeper as uh, as it unfolds. Um, And biblical theology essentially is just this discipline, but also it's this, uh, this initiative that is undertaken by faith to understand the story as God tells it. Uh, That's what I think we've been trying to show, trying to give you a good framework for. Um, But as we we saw last time, how that biblical theology story, if you will, started with Cain and Abel, and really perhaps we could even go back to Adam and Eve, with their sins being covered by the blood of, 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 of someone else, in their case, being covered by animals that were sacrificed for them, um, that image, that, that beautiful picture of who Christ is and what he would do is carried forward throughout all of the history of the people of Israel. Um, and, and instead of just me giving you this um, sort of lesson, um, instead of me sort of trying to bring you through all of it, who better to give us an overview of, of how this story unfolds other than the Bible itself, and specifically the deacon named Stephen. Uh, If you were at the Good News Club back in January, I preached something similar to this. So that may only be one person in here, but it's okay. Maybe she forgot. Um, But I want you to go, I want to go through Stephen's sermon, because essentially what you have in Stephen's sermon is a really long but also a really pointed and a very carefully uh, 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 put together address that is essentially Biblical Theology 101. If you want to know what it looks like for someone in the New Testament really really close on the heels of, of when Jesus was around and alive to understand what the Bible was supposed to do and say and mean, Look no further than what Stephen does here in this sermon. Because essentially what he's doing is he's looking at the Old Testament and he's going to show and he's going to prove, and I'm spoiling the point and spoiling the application, but he's going to show and prove that all of this was leading up to Jesus the whole time. This, this, this history that all of the people that he was standing in front of knew all of the Bible lessons that they would have been familiar with from all of their days in synagogue, all of, those, all of that history that they were, were familiar with, all of it found its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus. That's what Stephen is going to do and, and show through this sermon. So let me walk you through it and we can kind of see that together. Um, 
Go back, though, to chapter 6, because at the end of 6, that's kind of where we get the background to what's going on. If you know and you remember, Stephen is a deacon. He's one of the, the first uh, deacons sort of chosen uh, in chapter number 6 at the beginning to uh, when, the, when the apostles realize that, that there's, um, there's this problem going on. These certain, um, these certain widows are not being able to be helped, and, and they don't um, have the bandwidth to be able to do it, so they choose these deacons um, in among them is Stephen, and then immediately uh, after that, or sometime after that, he is uh, brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, because of some charges that they had basically trumped up. It's kind of made up charges. If you look at verse 12, notice what happens. Um, And they stirred up the people, they being the Sanhedrin, and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And again, you have this council that is often referred to as the Sanhedrin, uh, that is often uh, referred to as all of these elders and these council members, these guys who were both religious and they were both uh, religious influencers and political influencers. You have them here once again doing what they did a couple years before this, by the way, which was uh, have a trial with this guy in front of them who's preaching a certain message that they don't like, and how are they going to get rid of them? They're going to drum up some false witnesses and make some false claims about them. Who does that sound like, by the way? Jesus. And by the way, this is the same exact group of individuals that did that to Jesus here once again, they're doing it to Stephen. But anyways, uh, it's, it's fascinating what their, what their charge is, what their accusation is, that you know he's preaching about Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Did Jesus ever even really say that? Well, he did, but of course, back in John, if you remember, he was referring to his own body. He wasn't referring to the temple, um, the temple itself. If he was, he was referring to a prophecy that would yet be uh, fulfilled after this. But regardless, he wasn't really referring to the structure. He was referring to his own body. John tells us that in John chapter 2, by the way, of his gospel. Um, But that same idea is the destruction of the temple of Jesus' body which leads to the salvation of sinners and is he is he trying to change the customs that Moses delivered to us no he's actually replacing them why because he's the fulfillment of them Um, again it shows you how the mind of man that doesn't have the Holy Spirit cannot understand spiritual things Um, but regardless they they have all these charges brought to Stephen and then he's going to make this defense so if you look at Verse number uh, one of chapter seven. The high priest of this council says, are these things so? And Stephen said, and here he launches in from verse two down through basically verse uh, 50 odd. Um, I think it's like 51. Uh, No, it's 53. So verse two through 53, he's going to launch into this sermon. And what's interesting is that this sermon where we might naturally be led and be given to make a self-defense, uh, if, we, if we know that 
what they're saying about us is not true, what is our immediate response usually going to be? It's to make uh, it very clear that their charges, their accusations are wrong. We're going to explain ourselves. We're going to try and defend ourselves. But what is so fascinating about this whole sermon that Peter, or excuse me, that Stephen gives is that he doesn't try and clear his name. He doesn't try to explain himself other than to explain how the ones in front of him, they had missed the mark. They had missed it. They had totally misread the scriptures if they had even remembered any of their old Sunday school lessons. They had missed what, all, what the Bible was about. They had missed the whole thing. And even when he gets to the end, he's going to remind them that they were some of the same ones who put Jesus to death. So he's, what he's going to do is he is going to go on a really long-winded but a really actually amazing and informative lesson through uh, their own history. Again, who's sitting on this council? Israelites, uh, Sanhedrin members who are elders perhaps of different locations and regions. But he's drumming up this history lesson to remind them that what he is proclaiming, is no different than what God has been doing from the very beginning. Which is just to say that this history is not just the uh, rehearsal of, of dates and, and facts and people and places that you might often think of when you think of, oh, boring history. This is actually a, a, a revelation from God that is given to these men. As Stephen is here attesting that the purposes and the promises of God, they always prevail. So uh, we're just going to overview this in the next, for the next couple minutes. But who better to start out this sermon with than again to note that he starts with Father Abraham. Look at verse 2. Stephen speaking, he says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So he immediately reminds them, as we've noted on several occasions, he begins with Abraham making a point to, to bring up the most important figure in Israelite history because he is, we could say, the first Israelite, if you will. And he receives this promise and then he follows it. Look at verse 3. And this is a, uh, the word of God is speaking to Abraham. Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran and his father died. God removed him from there and into this land into which you are now living. So we have this, this little picture here of how Abraham's faith is evidenced in obedience, but yet again, it's a faith in nothing but the word of God's promise. And to emphasize this point for us, he again quotes uh, what we spent a little bit of time on this morning, the Abrahamic covenant, if you will. Notice verse number six, and God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, and he would enslave them and afflict them for... Oh, that's... Um, oh, uh, verse number five, sorry. Uh, but yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring uh, after him, though he had no child. 
And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. This is God's word of promise that his offspring would inherit this land. Again, as we noted this morning, his offspring would be as, num- as numerous as the stars in the night sky. They would basically have no end. And he is assuring them that everything that you see around you, this land, the dirt underneath your feet, and the mountains that you see in the horizon, and all the trees and everything, all of this will be given, as he says, as a possession, as an inheritance to your offspring. And Abraham believed this word of promise. And of course, if you remember from this morning or from your Bible history, he believed the word of God's promise and it was counted to him as righteousness. And what did Abraham have to go on? Well, really nothing other than what God's word said. Again, he didn't have uh, his own heir. And he was reaching uh, elderly age, so to speak, uh, yet well beyond the age of child rearing, so to speak. And yet again, what occurs? He believes in God's word of promise anyways. And of course, what does God do? He delivers on that promise. Look at verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So here, what Stephen has just done is establish a number of things for us, but also for these council members who are putting him on trial. Namely, uh, the effect of that God always delivers on his promises. This is how it's always been. Even when it's looked unlikely, God always delivers on what he has promised to do. That's always how it's been, and that's always how it will be. And the way of the people of Israel has always been to that end, to take God at his word. The people of Israel have always been a people of faith. Not just of ritual, not just of following regulations or following the law. Primarily, they've been a people of faith, taking God and trusting in this God who gives them this amazing promise. From Father Abraham till now, that has been true. So here, at the very beginning, Stephen has reminded them of several hundred years of history where God has established a people and given those people a promise, a promise of blessing, a promise of deliverance. And yet, what do you know? That promise is put to the test. This is where we get to Stephen's allusion to the story of Joseph where we are made to see how this story of God's promise is preserved through what we could call turmoil. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. This, of course, is the story of Joseph, very familiar story for us all, where we have this account of young Joseph who tells his brothers about his dreams, uh, the dreams of all of them bowing down before them, and they sell him into slavery. 
that his brothers do. The, as, Joe, as Stephen has just reminded them, the very patriarchs of all the tribes of Israel, they sold their own brother into slavery to get rid of him because they couldn't stand him. And then they lie to their dad about where he is. And Joseph is seemingly never heard of again. That is, of course, until a famine strikes the land of their forefathers. And so the brothers, the patriarchs of the tribes, go and they inquire with the Egyptian governor about how they can secure some food and rations for their family. And what do you know? Who the Egyptian governor is, is none other than their long-lost brother Joseph. It's kind of like a movie, right? It's like a movie where all of this is perfectly uh, ordained and happening uh, against everyone's better judgment. And so, of course, by this, Stephen is showing what? How faithfully God is preserving and also, we could say, superintending on history. How he himself is the one who is preserving his word of promise, preserving his gospel, this thread of how his people will be delivered, even when that promise is rejected. Again, go if you remember, Joseph's, dream, Joseph's dreams were visions of this very moment when he would be able to deliver his brothers out of their affliction, out of the famine. They didn't like the idea of bowing the knee to their kid brother. And Joseph probably could have handled that vision better. But the point of all of this is, is that there was already in the works a time that would drive his brothers to desperation. And yet, even though that was already in the works, God had already raised up Joseph as their deliverer, as their helper. And so by revolting against their brother, the brothers are effectively rejecting the promise of God. But yet, even though they never expected it, even though they never really planned for it, the famine comes and Joseph's brothers are put in a, in a moment of great affliction. They're primed and ready for a helper. And guess what? God's been orchestrating this for the entire length of Joseph's life. They put them, they didn't really know that when they sold Joseph into slavery, they were playing right into how God was going to deliver them from out of their famine, from out of their time of need. They were playing right into God's providential hands, where you could say, uh, we, could, we could understand it like this. Did God uh, always have it in the cards for Joseph to be an Egyptian governor? That's not for us to know, but what is for us to know, because it really happened, is that God took the mess of these brothers uh, selling their own brother into slavery and used it to further his own purposes. If you want a verse to explain that, it's Romans 8.28, that God always works everything out for the good and the glory of his purposes, not ours. Was all of this good for Joseph? In the moment, we could say no. Joseph eventually realizes that it was. Remember, in, Joseph, uh, in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says that you meant all this for my ill, but God meant it for good. So he realizes the good that has come out of this. But in the moment, Joseph would not have said that it was good that he was in that pit or that it was good that he was led off by these nomads who eventually sold him into slavery or that he was forgotten in prison for years. None of that was good. But who makes good come out of bad? 
none other than this God who was always fulfilling his purposes and fulfilling and keeping his promises even when they're rejected. So again, look at verse 10. As, or, or excuse me, look at verse uh, 13. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Joseph, Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, and 75 persons in all. So here's that little story about how Joseph here, because of what his brothers did and how God providentially preserved Joseph's life, he is now here in a position where he is able to care for his entire family in their time of need. So even when God's people reject his deliverance, what happens? He delivers them anyway because he's that kind of a faithful God. So then ages pass. If you look at verse 17, Stephen jumps ahead. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So the people are in Egypt now. They stay in that place where Joseph was. And and unfortunately, the favor that Joseph enjoyed with that Pharaoh um, fades from time and from memory. If you look at verse 18, it says, Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. This, of course, is referencing the very first two chapters of Exodus, where now, after long centuries had passed, the, 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 the agreement and the, and the favor and sort of the, the, the grace that was shown unto Joseph and to all of his ancestors, that was, that was long forgotten. Now, the Israelites are being put into positions of slavery. And what's more, the, the, the Hebrew mothers, of course, are being forced to give up their infants. So now... The people of God are suffering. They are suffering and they are, yet again, kind of like the famine with Joseph's brothers. Now the people of God are being primed and readied for what? For a deliverer. Which this is precisely what God accomplishes. Look at verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in the, his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and his deeds. In this time, as it, as it says, at this time, or at just the right time, God raises up Moses to be the deliverer of his people. And I think it is so amazing how God perfectly arranged all of this. And Stephen is once again reminding all of these council members of history that they probably would have remembered or should have remembered, but he's doing it in such a way that reveals this beautiful pattern. How the enemies. Of God's people, the Egyptians, become the very caregivers and guardians of the one that God had appointed to deliver his people. How 
Moses, just like Joseph, Joseph who, who is able to ascend to this position of authority and this position of recognition, Moses is able to be raised and reared in a world that was not his home, and yet all the while, what is God doing? He is perfectly orchestrating the way in which his purposes will be fulfilled and his promises will be kept in and through Moses. And these are the remarkable circumstances that Moses is able to, uh, to live out. And uh, this is where we get to his call, so to speak. Let's jump down to verse 30, skipping ahead a little bit in the narrative. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look, and there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, and Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. So even... Of course, if you remember, Moses retreated into the wilderness. Why? Because he was caught murdering an Egyptian, um, and then he runs away. And yet, even in that wilderness, God finds him, and once again here at the burning bush, employs him to be the deliverer of God's people. And the same deliverer that was rejected is the same deliverer who brings the people out. Look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? That's sort of the quote from that moment when he uh, is caught uh, murdering the Egyptian. This man, this Moses, God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And again, we have this amazing fact that God always delivers on his promises. He's always faithful to do what he says he's going to do. This is this pattern that Stephen is trying to establish. Can you see it? That God is giving his people a promise. That promise is rejected by his people. And yet God fulfills that promise anyway, regardless because he's that kind of a faithful God. He did that with, with Moses here. The people of God rejected Moses. Moses ends up being the deliverer anyways. He did that with Joseph. Joseph was going to be raised up to be the deliverer of, of, the, of God's people. They reject him. He's, he's the deliverer anyways. And even if you go back to Abraham, he initially doesn't totally believe the promise. The promise of uh, all of... Of, of the blessings going to come through him and through his line, through Sarah. Um, eventually, he's, uh, that's of course why he uh, fathers Ishmael and uh, fathers Ishmael against the wishes of what God wanted him to do. But, and yet, even still, what occurs? He still uses Abraham, still uses Sarah, where they have Isaac and the rest is history, so to speak. So Stephen is establishing this pattern of, of rejection and unbelief and yet God delivering on his promises and fulfilling his purposes anyways. Which is when finally Stephen comes to sort of address the very explicit accusation made by the council at the very beginning. Remember they had told and they had made this 
charge that, you know, uh, that he was just preaching this message about how Jesus was going to come and destroy the temple. Well, notice verse number 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in, in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. So do you words which likely didn't sound too good in the ears of those council members, of course. But if you remember, what he's going to draw up here is he's going to draw their attention to uh, what we could call the precursor to the temple, of course, which was the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the same as the tent of witness that you find there in verse 44. It's this place of worship that, of course, was ordained by God all throughout those days of wilderness wanderings. It's the place where Moses and Aaron began the worship of the one true God. And the people of God worshipped in that place called the tabernacle all the way until Solomon built the temple. Uh, thousands of years or hundreds of years later. But I think it's fascinating what Stephen calls the tabernacle there, as he says, the tent of witness in verse 44, which, of course, ought to draw our attention to the question, what is the tabernacle witnessing to? And, of course, Stephen answers this for us in verse 48 that we just read, where he says in quotes from the book of Isaiah, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 66. And he's quoting this, I think, in a very profound way, because he's wanting to draw attention to the fact that the tabernacle and the temple after it, they were meant to be witnesses to the promise and the promises of God. That's what the tent of witness was a witness to. It's the promise of what? That God would put away the people's sins in a very specific way, of course. If you remember what was happening in the tabernacle, it was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement by which all of the people's sins would be put away. Where the, where the high priests of God's people would, be, would lead the people through that beautiful liturgy in which they would see how, the, the, how all of their sins would be, be, would be put on that scapegoat and be let out into the wilderness. Or to be put on the goat uh, that was, had its throat slit on the altar and all of their sins would be paid for by that lamb's blood. You see, that's what the tabernacle is witnessing. And of course, I think what is within that verse 8, where, or that verse 48, where he says, the Most High doesn't dwell in houses made by hands. Uh, the point is, 
The tabernacle and the temple, after it, they were special places, but only insofar as they directed the people's attention to the giver of the promise, to the one who is filling that place with his presence. Which is just to say, it's not all of the gold, it's not all of the things that glitter, it's not all of the amazing ivory and all of the amazing woodwork. That's not what made the temple special. All of the incredibly handcrafted um, uh, 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 pieces of cloth that made up the tabernacle, that you can read about them, those things were not, so to speak, what the people were supposed to be focusing on. It's not the cloth. It's the fact that that's the place where God and his presence dwelt. The significance of those places was not in, the, not in the fabric, was not in the brick and the mortar. It was in the fact that the very God who made all of this happen was present for them and was fulfilling his promises of deliverance for them. Is the fact that God's promises were still in effect. And yet, so again, even though you have this tent of witness and this temple that witnesses to the people uh, or to the promises of God, what are they witnessing to? That after all of those long centuries of God's people uh, rejecting uh, the promises of God, God still hadn't abandoned them. When you read... Um, the book, the books like Kings and Chronicles, and you read about the temple and you read about its structure, read it from that standpoint. That as long as that temple is standing, what is occurring? You have sort of a beacon of hope being sent out to the people of God that yet, even though they might reject him, God still is delivering them. And that's what makes it all the more scandalous, by the way, when you read those books and kings allow uh, foreign rulers and foreign overlords to have their way in the temple. And yet again, this is what makes it all the more devastating when we get to Jeremiah and all of Israel is sacked and the temple is destroyed. Because for the people of Israel, what does that make them think of? It makes them think that God and his presence had left them. And of course, you could say that he did, but of course we could say more accurately that God's people had turned their backs on God himself well before that juncture. So over time, Stephen is trying to draw these council members to remember the fact that God always delivers on his promises. Even when those words of promise are rejected, even when the gospel is rejected, God still delivers on it anyways. And even when that temple structure became more important than what it represented, that brings Stephen to what he says again in verse 51. You stiff-necked people. (laughs) Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. (laughs) So essentially, what is he saying? 
that every time Israel rebelled against the promises of God, even when the deliverer and the rescuer of God's people was rejected by God's people, what occurred? God saw fit to fulfill his promises anyway, to execute and deliver his purposes anyway. And Stephen is here saying that this has just occurred in your midst. How? By the rejection and the murder of Jesus. This very counsel Stephen is here saying. They were continuing, as he has just shown, in a long line of history that is all bound up in the dismissal of what God has said. Whenever God's word of promise was rejected, what occurred anyways? God delivered on his promises anyway. And so here again, even in their betrayal and even in their murder of God's promised deliverer, which was none other than Jesus of Nazareth, even that couldn't undo the promises of God. Because even as Stephen, uh, or excuse me, even as God's son was being betrayed and murdered, what was occurring? He was working out his people's deliverance. Because remember, what does he say from the cross? Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. So in, the, in this amazing sermon that Stephen gives, he's drawing their attention to the pattern of God that has worked throughout all of history, from Abraham to Joseph to Moses to all of the prophets, that has always been in the cards that Jesus would come and fulfill the promises of God in their midst. So here Stephen, through this message, has not only totally refuted the council's accusations, but he's also demonstrated that his words, they've been no different than the, what God has declared from the very beginning. And of course, this doesn't sit well with the council. They get all mad. They try and silence Stephen, and then they eventually silence him for good by stoning him. And yet even then, God's purposes weren't hindered in the slightest. Because, of course, who's witnessing this death? Chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of his, that is, Stephen's execution. And once again, what do you have? You have a mess. You have a total uh, event that looks like horrible, nasty violence. And yet, what God is, what is God going to do out of that mess? He is going to bring so much goodness out of all of this badness. <laughs> because what is he going to do with Saul? He's going to turn him into Paul and lead him to be the evangelizer of all of the nations that were in the known world at that time. The greatest missionary this world has ever seen was right here, seeing, uh, right here, uh, witnessing the very execution of the deacon known as Stephen. So, what can we say about this sermon? We can say that all of history is bound up in this wonderful, uh, wonderful truth that God is always working to fulfill his promises and he's always faithful to fulfill his word despite us. So this gives us great comfort, does it not? In all of our days of confusion and, and chaos and, and when everything appears as if it's a mess, what do we know is true beyond a shadow of a doubt? That God always fulfills his word. That even more stubborn than the heart of man is to sin is the grace of God that delivers. 
And who do we know, how, do, how do we know that this is true? Because we can look at the cross and know that it is true. What is a more messy sight than the cross? More messy than the murder of Stephen? More full of hate than the betrayal of Joseph and his brothers? Is the sight of the cross where yet even as it appeared, all of God's uh, promises were being rejected, what was occurring? God was fulfilling his word anyways. Because he was buying all of his people's deliverance. He was making it so sure and certain that every sinner could be justified in and through him, that every long-lost, exhausted lawbreaker could find their salvation in what he was accomplishing, even as everything was being rejected at that awful sight of Golgotha, God was paying the ultimate price for them anyways. God always fulfills his word. And out of every messy situation, he brings about his wonderful mercy. And out of every little instance of garbage and violence, he brings out his glory. And that's what we can revel in. That's what I think this wonderful study of biblical theology lets us see. This beautiful pattern that God has established from before the foundations of the world. This is true. And Stephen is drawing our attention to precisely this. Not just drawing this council's attention, he's drawing our attention too. This, by the way, is how we should read the Bible. He's showing us that. How are we to read the Bible? Notice these patterns and notice how they always find their fulfillment in Jesus. It's like that old quote that anywhere you're going to cut the Bible is going to bleed red. Why? Because it's always about Christ. And he's showing them here. You've missed it if you think it's about just this or that. He's showing them all of that time that Abraham was playing into a pattern, so to speak, that reveals the Redeemer. And even you, he's saying even you guys who rejected Christ, even you and your sins were paid for by the very Christ that you rejected. He's showing them that this whole thing is about Jesus. And may we learn to read our Bibles the same way. That there is a promise that is given to us and there is a purpose that God is working to fulfill. And even when we stumble and fall, and even when we go through seasons of, of rejection and rebellion, what is God doing? He's working out His purposes, His promises anyways. Because that's the type of God we have. He's a God who is faithful to the very end, to the very end of the age. And so will he be. Let us pray.